My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in two ways. You can write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. Today, the topic is surveillance, privacy, search engines, and Big Brother. And my esteemed guest is Stephen E. Arno. Stephen is a specialist in online search and content processing. He is the author of several books and monographs, including a trilogy on Google. Stephen is also the blogger, beyond, uh, the blogger behind Beyond Search. And some time ago, he was uh, working for interesting companies such as uh, Halliburton Nuclear and Booz Allen and Hamilton, which, if my memory serves me well, is the same company where Edward Snowden was a contractor for. Uh, was that the case, uh, Stephen, by the way? Is that the yeah. same company? Well, thank you for having me. I think uh, Mr. Snowden was a contractor, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is a, he, yes, he was a contractor, yes, for the same company. Great. So we'll, we'll, we may be able to touch a little bit more on that uh, later, but let me start by first saying thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you again for uh, inviting me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So, uh, Stephen, if I were to ask you to introduce yourself uh, in a couple of words, how would you best do that yourself? I suppose lucky. Uh, <laughs> I got involved with uh, processing information in 1962 um, by accident, and uh, I was uh, studying uh, medieval religious literature, and I ended up getting uh, hired by Halliburton Nuclear in Washington, D.C. I, I don't think they were intrigued with the poetry. Uh, they were interested in what I could uh, do with the computer. Well, that's a very big jump uh, from one field into another. So perhaps that's a very interesting story for you to share with us. So let, let's start first by uh, perhaps covering uh, your personal history on how you got interested in technology in general and computers in particular, and then eventually how you made the move into the search space, because that's a fascinating story. Well, I, I was a 17-year-old freshman at a small college and I needed money. A professor had posted a request for someone who could program a computer uh, to index uh, content for him. I knew nothing about computers and so I tore off the phone number and called and I said, sir, I can do the job for you. And he said, great. And I went to the library the first semester and uh, a few weeks later, I was able to uh, show him how I could take uh, his text and uh, print out uh, uh, an index. And uh, everything took off from there. And the problem was <laughs> the little college I went to uh, only had enough computer capacity for people who were studying to be electrical engineers. And when we told them that I was in the English department, uh, they said, you have to work in the computer center. So uh, the, I became a, a late night worker and uh, that became my uh, love and eventually uh, my career. 
Wow. So, so did that love actually uh, supersede the love for medieval poetry and stuff like that? <laughs> to, to, to tell you the truth, I just checked something off as a 17-year-old freshman. I, I had no idea what I was doing. And, uh, you know, it, it, it stuck with me because uh, as I moved through college, the uh, English and uh, liberal arts uh, departments wanted somebody who could bring the computer into the study of uh, plays and poetry. So I nearly re really didn't read anything. <laughs> I, I, I just uh, worked on the, uh, uh, the computer side of it, and it worked very well. And uh, I, I, I was in graduate school working on a PhD uh, at the University of Illinois, and uh, Halliburton needed someone to process the documents related to uh, nuclear technology. And uh, they didn't have anybody. And there was no one in the United States who was even remotely interested in that. And that's how I ended up getting recruited right out of uh, the PhD program. And uh, my career, uh, that, that set me on my path. Fascinating. And what, what year was that? You said 1962? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I'm, over, I'm 71 years old, and uh, I officially retired after a heart attack in 2013. Uh, but I, I'm keeping busy, and uh, uh, talking to young people like you is a, a great thrill. Thank you. And, and uh, people like me enjoy uh, learning the history and getting some wisdom from people like you too. So I appreciate that very much. Uh, now, uh, let, me, let me ask you this though. What was your PhD about? Was that more relatable to that kind of work or not? Yeah, I was studying at U of I uh, with Arthur Barker and he wanted me to index Milton. And so I... Yeah, I you know I was in the computer center and uh, processing uh, Paradise Lost and Paradise Found, and uh, I gave a speech talking about those techniques, and uh, there was uh, a representative of Halliburton, I guess in Texas, had ended up at the conference, and uh, it literally was a matter of days uh, between my talk and uh, their making me an offer, which for a, obviously a PhD student was very attractive. Namely, I could buy food. <laughs> wow, wow, that's, that's, that's fascinating. So let's trace your story a little bit further down the road uh, until eventually uh, you got to a point. So tell us what happened after Halliburton and how your career progressed so that we get the sort of the bird's eye view uh, of your path. Uh, well, quickly, uh, at Halliburton, uh, everything worked very well. Uh, I ended up uh, doing a project that led me to work with uh, Admiral uh, Craig Hosmer, who was the head of the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy. Uh, I was the U.S. representative for a joint nuclear meeting. Uh, Booz Allen uh, apparently heard about that, and uh, I received a call from a a gentleman named Ron Coughlin, and he introduced me to a, the smartest man I ever worked with, Dr. Bill Summers, and he offered me a job to be his right hand 
in building what is today the Booz Allen government practice. So I was uh, behind the scenes with Dr. Summers uh, through those initial formative years of putting into place uh, the group that had the misfortune to hire a contractor vetted by a third party. Uh, but I was there at the inception. Um, I ended up getting hired by a company, a client actually, and that led me uh, to uh, work for the Courier-Journal and Louisville Times, a gentleman named uh, Barry Bingham, who owned a very influential uh, newspaper and conglomerate. And he was losing several million dollars a year with a database. And uh, somehow he made the connection that I could use my uh, knowledge of indexing to solve the problem of that losing money. And we were able to do that very quickly. And uh, I worked uh, in the uh, commercial database business. And we produced, uh, at that time, the number one business database called ABI Inform. Uh, we did the first uh, full text database with corrections, which was nothing more than what I had been doing since I was 17 years old. Uh, and those became hugely successful. Uh, the Courier Journal sold. and. Uh, I went uh, uh, for a short time with the company acquiring, but I ended up working uh, with the Bill Ziff Group in New York City, and we uh, built a number of databases, which were, again, very, very successful, including the very first interactive health uh, information center for consumers. So if you go to the doctor, you could go to this system in 1987, I think, 88, Wow. And you could ask a question, uh, and it would give you a plain English response. Now, we didn't use really smart software. We used somewhat stupid software, uh, but we analyzed the kinds of questions people ask when they found they had prostate cancer or something. And so we cheated. We delivered a prepackaged, essentially an intelligence report for a consumer. Uh, I, I, Bill Ziff uh, decided to sell the company, and I was very fortunate to, to get a deal with him that I would be uh, kind of available, uh, but I was free to go do new things, and I hooked up with a friend of mine, Chris Kitsy, who lives in the Bay Area now, and we did uh, Point, uh, and at, in the, at that time, it was 92 or 93 we started, and it was a uh, a, a, an index of non-pornographic websites. <laughs> and uh, we did this with both some smart software, again, from, uh, you know, 1962-63. I don't do many original things. I'm, I just repeat. And uh, that was very successful. Uh, we sold it to CMGI, uh, and I... Uh, uh, came back uh, to Kentucky. Chris stayed in uh, California, and uh, he got involved with Wine.com and some other very successful ventures. And I um, uh, basically uh, started work on uh, some projects that interested me. And one of those projects uh, involved an investment bank, and I ended up uh, in the year 2000 uh, being invited to assist with indexing the content of the US federal government. At that time, there were 38,000 servers, 
And I had met Eric Brewer along the way, and uh, he and I were talking about how to index this stuff. And so uh, the original index of the federal government was based on uh, some technology that uh, Dr. Brewer had, and then I worked inside that system. Uh, I was in the uh, working in the government, and technically in a unit of the White House, but it was on top of a McDonald's where Bill Clinton used to buy hamburgers. But uh, I was around in 911, and another acquaintance of mine involved me uh, in uh, expanding aggressively uh, what was called the Threat Open Source Intelligence Date- Gateway, TOSIG. And that system uh, is running today. Uh, I stepped out of that in uh, 2007 when I had my first heart problem. And uh, uh, so, so since uh, 2007, I've simply been doing projects for different people. Uh, I've done some things involving uh, security agencies in the European Union. Uh, until my last health problem, I was doing training for uh, of uh, intelligence and uh, law enforcement. Uh, but I've had to drop out of that because, again, uh, the travel is extremely difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And so now, uh, you know, I continue to write my books. Uh, my most recent one is called Dark Web Notebook. And this is a cookbook uh, for an investigator to um, access information on the dark web. But the most unique thing in the book is I'm profiling for the first time some of the companies uh, that perform uh, high-value dark web indexing. And uh, these are off the radar. Uh, And uh, this is a follow-on to my book in 2015 called Cyber OSINT, Next Generation Information Access. So I've always been the way I was with that first professor uh, as a freshman. I'm behind the scenes. I'm doing things. Uh, I've been uh, in the spotlight a a little bit, but I am more comfortable working uh, as I do in my computer center here in rural Kentucky. uh, I'm pretty much the same as the 17-year-old I was when I, I said, yeah, sure, I can do it. I've always felt I can figure out how to do stuff, and uh, that's just been my characteristic. So I am the most youthful 71-year-old you're going to talk to today. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's very nice. That's, that's excellent. Uh, and it's a pleasure to talk to you. So can you, by any chance, uh, share some of your customers uh, after 2007? Uh, and if not by name, at least kind of describe what you do or whatever you can tell us. Uh, well, I... I've worked for the world's largest search engine, which I cannot name. <laughs> I've worked for the world's largest vendor of software, uh, primarily the uh, research group. Uh, of course, uh, the the work f- for the federal government involves a number of agencies, ranging from uh, the, uh, the the White House projects to Capitol Police um, to to uh, other other entities, uh, which I'm not comfortable naming. I'm not active anymore. I don't do any operational work. Uh, but yeah, there, there are organizations that are in the news. Uh, in Europe, I have worked for uh, 
uh, groups that are seeking to uh, stop uh, crime uh, from certain Eastern European states. Uh, and I've, I've, I've worked for one of the intelligence agencies, which is the primary contractor uh, for the U.S. government. Uh, the U.S. government outsources some intelligence activities, and, and I work with that, that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and plus some commercial outfits like investment banks. Uh, you know, I worked with Bear Stearns, uh, which supported my Google work for years until it failed. Uh, a SunTrust, uh, a, a Manning and Napier, which has been a very large investor in uh, next generation content systems. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been around. Uh, I, I did. I used to do columns and things, but I'm more happy doing my research here and then responding. If someone I know has a problem and it makes sense, I will try to tackle it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, in fact, of course, you, you you have half a century worth of experience in the field, which is what makes you so unique and which is why I'm so happy to have this discussion with you today. So let's start uh, diving into the details step by step while uh, keeping in mind that I would like to keep a sort of a broader perspective than what you usually used to, perhaps, uh, because I want to keep the big picture in mind and, and also because most of my audience, including myself, we're not experts in the field as you are. So uh, there's only so so deep we can go. And of course, you can only share so much on some of those topics. But let's, let's start with this, perhaps. Um, tell us what your blog, Beyond Search, is all about. Uh, well, I started Beyond Search in 2008 because I was extremely angry uh, about the information regarding uh, the, the success and health of fast search and transfer. Uh, at that time, uh, fast search and transfer came to my attention. I was under investigation by the uh, Norwegian financial authorities uh, for um, misstating uh, its financials. And I had done research that identified uh, that there was substance behind that uh, investigation. And so I turned the blog in to the only independent uh, source of information uh, about uh, what I think are uh, problems or misstatements related to uh, online search and content processing. Uh, I don't do advertising. Uh, I pay four uh, researchers, one journalist, two research librarians, and one uh, just very hardworking single mother uh, to uh, process the data and uh, create the short items. Mm -hmm. And then I typically will, if they do two stories on a similar topic, I put them together and add my critical twist. And so, uh, as the enterprise search sector has been shown uh, to have a glass ceiling in terms of revenues, uh, you know, I continue to cover that sector because search, finding information is the core of the intelligence process. Uh, you, if you can't find it, uh, you can't do uh, anything. And, and so, it's absolutely essential to understand answering questions uh, on point and in a manner that someone can use it to uh, do a job. And that's been the theme of Beyond Search. 
Now, so let me ask you, the way you define search, um, that would make it totally applicable or, or kind of the same thing, regardless of whether it's used for law enforcement uh, analysis uh, or counterterrorism effort post 9-11 or what have you, and or for commercial purposes like uh, Google does, for example, right? It's the same thing. It's just a different target audience uh, and so on, isn't it? It's exactly the same as what the professor wanted to do in 1962. He had a bunch of Latin sermons, and the only way you could find anything was to look at the sermons on microfilm. This is the same thing we have, whether it's cell phone intercepts, uh, whether it's geospatial data, whether it's processing YouTube's uploaded from a specific IP address, exactly the same problem and process. The, the difficulty that exists is that today we need to process data in a range of file types and at much higher speeds than have ever been uh, anticipated. But the processes remain the same. If we talk about Google showing you where to get a pizza in San Mateo, or whether we talk about the location of a bad actor in uh, downtown uh, Chicago on uh, Michigan Avenue, it's exactly the same set of algorithmic procedures and thought processes. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So before we dive in here, let me just ask you about your, your books uh, and how they fit within this here and your reports. So for example, uh, tell us a little bit more about the Google Trilogy and perhaps one why I think it's the second book which is named the Cal Google, The Calculating Predator. So please unpack that for us a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, I was working here in Kentucky, and I had done a couple of uh, uh, speeches about Google and uh, the, the uh, methods of obtaining relevance uh, for the search results. And uh, I had gone back and gotten a copy of Sergey Brin's and Larry Page's syllabus for a computer science class they taught when they were uh, students at Stanford and the paper, I just got the syllabus and I looked at it and uh, Sergey and Larry identified the uh, centroids of interest for that course. So I read everything. And when I read it and then I looked at uh, the write-up uh, that came out about uh, uh, first the uh, search engine paper that Sergey and Larry did, and then the patent application, which is assigned to Stanford Board of Trustees, not Google, uh, I was able to identify the precursors. So I thought, nobody knows this. Everybody thinks Google just came out of uh, the, the dorm room and back rub and those crazy Lego colored servers they had, which they actually took from other parts of the computer science uh, class, according to my research. So that led me to write uh, the first book, uh, which was called The Google Legacy, because the angle of the legacy was that what these young men did was going to be the trajectory for the companies that we now recognize as Facebook, Airbnb, eBay, Palantir, etc. Very smart young people whose theory is, let's look at what's 
available but not been used effectively, right? Nothing really new, but like Lego blocks, we put it together and we have something quite remarkable. And uh, I wrote that down and that was called the Google Legacy and that was quite successful. Uh, and then Bear Stearns uh, reproduced part of the book. Uh, one of my contacts, a former CIA uh, person, purchased a bulk volumes, a bulk quantity, and they used it uh, in some training at the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, then a fella at uh, Bear Stearns asked me, what's next? I wrangled a little bit of money from him, and that's when I did the calculating predator. And the idea is that Google was, of all of the search engines that were available for web processing, Google was most wedded uh, to the use of pure mathematical methods in order to reduce costs. Uh, and so I focused on their patent applications and journal literature. And that book, The Calculating Predator, really lays out uh, the mathematical basis behind most of the infrastructure uh, that is delivering services today. Uh, and I think I started work on that book in 2008, and it appeared in 2009. And then uh, another bank asked me to look at the impact of Google on uh, the world of free information and publishing. And that led me to Google the digital Gutenberg, uh, because at that time, Google was one of the largest net generators of digital information, although people don't think of them as that. But if you view the ads as content uh, and the book project as content and the blog posts as content, uh, and the actual search results as content, uh, Google uh, at that time was larger content generator than Facebook. Today, Facebook is a bigger publisher. And so that was the Google trilogy. Uh, and I uh, just got tired of Google. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I started working on what is beyond Google. And that led me to CyberOcent. And so the CyberOcent book is a follow-on in the sense, if we've hit a dead end with keyword search, what's next? And that book, CyberOcent, is the first look at how uh, collections of functions can deliver comprehensive, actionable, actionable reports, either to an operator, a military or a police or intelligence operator, or to a unit in a warfighting zone where they have to uh, process information, uh, get an output on a mobile device, and then either take defensive action to save their lives or offensive action to remove a threat. And so th those books are all related and they can be read in sequencing. Uh, and the proof of the value of the Google legacy is that every one of those books, just like my entire work in online started in 1962, my work on Google started in 1998 or 99, I don't really do anything new. I just keep following these themes. And, and so Dark Web Notebook is very logical. It's simply, this is a new content domain. And if you're an intelligence or information professional, 
how do you make uh, headway in that space? And, uh, you know, at my age, I don't know how long I can keep going. Uh, but, you know, that's what's occupying me right now and how the books fit together. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So I get the calculating part of, of the title. Uh, because of its mathematical basis, uh, as you put it. But I still, sorry, I, I still don't see the predator quite clearly. Can you please tell us a bit more on that? Oh, yeah. I did a, a, an analysis for a, an intelligence group of the uh, functions and biases in the most used algorithms in content processing. And one of the characteristics of these algorithms is that they are greedy. Uh, as soon as an algorithm discerns a signal, and this is explained in a number of Google patents, it's very clear, the signal amplifies itself, right? So if a lot of people are looking for pizza in San Mateo, the system simply recognizes that blip and that immediately you know, has impacts within the Google advertising environment, right? Yeah, right now a lot of people are looking for move to Canada every time there's a US Exactly. So searches on Nova Scotia, <laughs> Prince Edward Island are That's going right. up. If you do Okay, the algorithms then seize on that and they are greedy and they feed that in and these algorithms have a tendency to create feedback loops. And so one of the pieces of research I did for the Tosigs project was how can we create content that triggers feedback loops in these algorithms. Well, that's where the predator part comes from. If you trigger the algorithm and it continues to be stimulated, they just become greedy. So I use that notion of Google and its patents and disclosures, uh, and I, I, I don't remember the patent number now, but it describes what Google calls as mechanics and garbage and all sorts of things but it really means the system is greedy, it's consuming information. And uh, I, I just put the words together and I came up with, uh, you know, Google version two, colon, the calculating predator. Because after they exhausted the initial five years of Google development, the next wave up was to integrate more sophisticated algorithmic methods from a guy named Ramanathan Guha, and a guy named Elon Halibi, both of whom are still at Google. And I cover them extensively in The Calculating Predator. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, and I have to add another, another part to that. And it was in 2011 when I went to visit Google, they were buying an average of two companies per week. I think this has actually accelerated since then. And if I'm not mistaken, it's about three companies per week that Google is buying and acquiring now. So that's kind of also... Yeah, yeah. It all fits together. As the system becomes larger and starts consuming the knowledge, because of the algorithmic thinking that Sergey and Larry do, it makes perfect sense to acquire promising companies because you get the aqua hire, you get smart people coming in, and you also get modules of technology that you can bring in and add. And so as I explain in both Google Legacy and uh, the Calculating Predator, the additive function of technology tends to have a geometric and in some cases exponential impact 
on the capabilities of Google. There would be no loon balloon if Google hadn't taken that approach of acquiring technology and expertise. Right, and, and that kind of also uh, is revealed by their recent move to Alphabet rather than Google with a portfolio of investments and acquisitions and stuff like that. So Yeah, if you get the Google legacy, I got a picture of that. I just didn't include uh, the balloon thing and I didn't include conquering death. But I, that diagram I did in 2006 uh, is about 75 or 80% accurate, which is pretty darned amazing since nobody even knew how Google was functioning or what its trajectory was. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's pretty impressive. Good work there. Uh, let me just uh, step away from Google for a second, Stephen, and let me ask you, what are the major players in search today? And are they the ones that the public usually sees in the spotlight, like usually Google and Yahoo uh, and maybe YouTube uh, as often quoted to be the third largest uh, uh, search engine out there? Or, or are there other major players that we don't get to see that often? Well, that's a very good question, but it, it has to be chopped up like a, 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 a wiener or something. One bite at a time. Okay. If we chop off one end of the wiener, there's a company uh, that is called Elastic. And it is a, a company which has taken Lucene open source technology uh, and made it the de facto choice for building uh, a search system. And so you have uh, open source, the Lucene and Solar, and then you have a commercial packager uh, the leader of which right now is Elastic. Now, there are a bunch of other companies who are doing this stuff, but the data that I collect here suggests Alaska, uh, Elastic is a home run. And the guy, Shai Bannon, uh, had done a previous search engine. This is a great idea he came up with. He's got substantial funding, and the company is very successful. And my son, who continues to work on the government projects after I stepped out, he's taken over some of the search work for the uh, U.S. government. Uh, he is a, a, one of the strongest supporters of Elastic, uh, very effective. If we chop in the middle, uh, there are people who are providing search technology, uh, many of which uh, you'll know. If I name them, uh, you'll say, oh, wow, I didn't know they were doing it. And that these guys are selling stuff. So there's Oracle, there's IBM, there's Hewlett-Packard. And those companies are the choice for many large firms. If you go to an investment bank, they're going to be looking at a stable, established brand. Now, you can quickly say, well, those guys didn't invent search. Hey, nobody invented search. I didn't invent search. I copied it from a book in 1962. So... These are the high-profile brands. And uh, then at the far end of the wiener, the right end, there are companies you've never heard of currently doing extremely advanced work in search and content processing. One of them is Diffio. Uh, that company operates out of uh, Boston, funded by MIT, applies many of the mathematical methods uh, from nuclear physics uh, there's a second company called Ty, uh, uh, Tiberium, I believe, and uh, it is located in Baltimore. 
Again, tremendous uh, work based on the mathematics of nuclear physics um, to uh, identify patterns in large flows. So what we have today is an extremely rich spectrum of companies. At one end, we have open source, which is the choice if you need a, a stable, reliable search system. If you're a large bank or in an institution, you'll be looking at the branded systems from the major enterprise providers. And if you're in the area that I'm exploring now and working on, you are tracking the companies, uh, you know, like uh, Hyperion Gray, uh, Diffio, uh, Tiberium, etc. That, that's a Terbium, I'm sorry, T-E-R-B-I-U-M, I mispronounced it. Uh, you, you're looking at those firms. So we have a very exciting time after more than 50 years of search and content processing. Yeah, and in your books and your monographs, you list uh, and profile dozens upon dozens upon dozens of such very interesting companies. Uh, so I was amazed by the spectrum of companies that I've never even heard of before. But let me ask you, what about the uh, two examples that come to my mind that do very interesting work? Uh, one made a little bit of headline news by being invested in from both Google uh, and uh, the CIA, perhaps, uh, called Recorded Future. And another one, uh, uh, a little bit notorious, perhaps, for other reasons, called uh, Palantir. Can you talk to us a bit about those two? Uh, okay, I've actually taken money from uh, Recorded Future, so uh, be, be aware. Uh, that company is partially funded in a remarkable investment deal uh, by Google and InQtel. They injected cash as a team into Recorded Future. Uh, that company is the uh, leader, uh, in my opinion, in predictive analytics. Uh, the system uh, is able to process standard web content as well as uh, directed content acquisition using recorded future technology. The reason Google and InQtel were interested, based on my research, uh, boils down to Google is terrible at time. T-I-M-E, the concept of time in the Google system is very good in advertising time. Will your ad run on this day and when? It's very good in terms of analyzing analytics from the urchin technology Google bought. Those guys, I think they were in LA. But in terms of doing a process to show me the most important information on this particular date and time and location is not what Google does. So Google gets temporal functionality. InQtel gets the predictive capabilities and visualization tools that were developed by the team that did Spotfire. And Spotfire is now part of TIBCO, and TIBCO is located in Palo Alto on one of those leafy streets behind those big, ugly white towers in Palo Alto Square. And so all of these things fit together for Google because this allows them to have a strong presence in the intelligence sector <clears throat> Further, it's partnering with InQtel, but also have access to that extremely sophisticated temporal function. So Recorded Future is very important. Uh, recorded Future is part of the 
Department of Defense uh, mashup working group along with another two dozen companies. Uh, and it is a positioned as an open, standard, pluggable, componentized advanced mathematical and visualization system. It is extremely important. If I were younger and I were healthier, uh, I would be beating down the door uh, of uh, recorded future because I see many ways to use that technology uh, in my area of interest, uh, which is intelligence, but also to use it in some allied fields, uh, such as you mentioned, the YouTube content and some other things. Let me just stop you for one second. So if I get this right, and please correct my ignorance uh, anytime uh, it steps out of line, uh, is recorded future supposed to be helpful in identifying the possibility or, or the higher probability of an occurrence of a 9-11 or Paris attack type of event before it were to occur. Is that okay. the goal? I get that question a lot. Any mathematical system can be interpreted as predictive. So we have to put the marketing aside. <laughs> what, recorded, what recorded future does is to use a suite of mathematical procedures which are taught in every college around the world, right? And they have assembled those in the manner of Google in order to perform some specific refinements of the outputs. Remember, Google came from Dr. John Kleinberg and from the guys at Deck Alpha. And then Google refined that in the Lego block model. Recorded future is able to shape mathematics to provide signals that an informed analyst can interpret as a precursor of intent. Specifically, there has been an area where there's been an uh, improvised explosive device. And you analyze the cell phone traffic around that area you examine the blog traffic, you examine the messaging from uh, uh, cell phones, from the various applications that are in use, and you see that the signals coincide within a, stati a statistically defined area. Think of it as a fruit basket. In that fruit basket, you have the ingredients that your mom used to use to make cookies. And so now an analyst can look at that signals, which are mathematical outputs or visualizations, and can conclude we need to take additional action in that area. That action can be feet on the street, it can be surveillance, it can be simply doing more mathematical analyses of additional data, like imagery from satellites, whatever, looking for truck movements. Recorded Future is one of the best companies at assembling those signals and displaying them in temporal structures. So if you're working, at, let's say you're part of a special operations team and there are six of you and you need to know which area to avoid, right? you do not want to go to that place, you can look at the Recorded Future outputs and you can choose a place where there aren't any signals, <laughs> right? You avoid 
So is that predictive? In my book, yeah, sure. That is allowing a human to make an informed decision. Is it the marketing craziness that I read every day and make fun of in Beyond Search? No, that stuff is science fiction. It's nuts. You, you have to have a mathematical um, underpinnings to know what's going on. But if you see the output, you can make an informed decision. And that becomes, from my book, useful predictive analytics. Mm-hmm. And how is that different from the work that Pal- Palantir does? Well, that is a great question. Uh, again, I need to tell you, uh, prior to the sale of I2, Palantir's biggest customer or, or biggest competitor, I was an advisor to one of the founders of I2 for a number of years. Uh, Palantir is a company that has built using open source technology, Lucene, for example, and others, a platform to perform a multiplicity of intelligence functions behind a consumerized interface. And so in my dark web notebook, uh, I have examples of the Palantir interface, which I could teach you to use in less than a half hour. So that means that you could pull together certain types of intelligence information, display those locations of improvised explosive devices on a map, and determine on a timeline if that was recent activity or old activity. Palantir makes all of that easy. And the difference between Palantir and its competitor, BAE Systems Net Reveal, or uh, IBM i2 in its present form, not the one I worked for, is that those systems tend to not be a half hour to one hour training. I would have to sit you down with me in this computer room. You can see some of the screens behind me. And I would have to have you spend a week at least before you could do particularly meaningful work with I2. And the reason is Palantir got funding from InQtel, and it then worked with InQtel's contacts to devise a system that addressed the usability problems in the incumbent leaders in platform augmented intelligence. So that's the buzzword, augmented intelligence. Machines help an intelligence officer do work faster and more accurately. Does that mean it's visual, visualizing all the data in a more intuitive manner? I'm just trying to translate it for us simple civilians here. Yes. The, the, if I were to show you, I don't have a way to connect you to one of the machines where I have the interfaces available. Uh, you would say this is like iPad. And you could pull in an entity, let's say uh, John Smith, and you could look at John Smith at his last known location on a map, and then you can click an icon and see who John Smith had phoned in the last hour. And you see that on the map. And obviously, anyone he phoned who is in close 
geographic proximity to him, you now know that's a person of interest and you can explore from there. And you so can what, see them on the map too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and then Palantir is a platform. So if you wanted to integrate more dynamic stuff like the Geophedia technology, which is intercept based and you have to be in law enforcement to use it, uh, you could look at the message traffic from those people in proximity. So Palantir makes all of this available. And the, if I show it to you, you, your first reaction will be, oh my golly, this is easy to use. This is easy to use. And remember, you're like a 22-year-old <laughs> specialist, and you don't know anything about it. You're like me when I was 17. So it's easy to use. And the second thing, it'll output not a laundry list of results. It'll output a visual representation of which a map is one type. You can do other things, right? Who is this system for? What? Who are the users? Who has access to Palantir, for example? Is well, there are two types of Palantir product. Uh, the type of product I'm familiar with is called Gotham, and that is designed for um, intelligence, uh, analysts, and police uh, to process data related to suspected bad actors. Uh, the other Palantir is called Metropolitan, and Metropolitan is the same mathematical plumbing, the same visualization plumbing, in an interface designed for an MBA on Wall Street, so that you can call up a company, Yahoo, and you can analyze the signals in the news stream and see how they relate to Yahoo. There's a link analysis. And then the signals that interest you uh, may be ones you can click on and then look at the underlying data, or you just want to look at a statistical summary of the signals, and you see a lot of activity between Yahoo and Verizon, so you decide to buy stock. And that's the kind of actionable functions that Palantir delivers to people today. And I do have a special report that will be available in about four weeks, which is 100 pages about Palantir. It's the most comprehensive analysis of the company's uh, technology. Uh, and I did the same thing I did to Google. I took uh, the patents. I read them. I separated the ones that I thought were important. And I base my technical analysis on 21 patent documents. And that's never before been done. Mm -hmm. uh, so that document will be interesting to anyone who wants to understand the Palantir platform and its business impacts. Let me ask you this. Perhaps now is the time to be, since you kind of gave us such a great description about the capabilities of those systems, uh, for example, with respect to cell phones and placing users on the map and addressing their messaging and or phone calls. Let me ask you about uh, the, the currently ongoing kind of uh, struggle between Apple versus the FBI uh, about uh, sort of creating a backdoor or unlocking that uh, specific uh, cell phone 
which of course Apple says would then give the FBI the ability to pretty much uh, break through in any other uh, Apple uh, cell phone. Based on what you're telling me right now, this seems to be already in actuality happening. Is that misunderstanding on my end? Well, security is a moving target. Each time a vendor brings out a new device with new security, uh, it, it is not something anybody has a crack for. But once the product is in the market, there are companies not in the U.S. I don't want to mention any U.S. companies uh, who specialize working for nation states to uh, compromise those devices. <coughs> and some of the companies uh, are not well known, and then if they are known, they change their names. So Vupin in Toulouse, which is a very big tech center in France, yeah. changed uh, its name to Zerodium. Uh, Vupin uh, is actively seeking young programmers who have uh, uh, methods to compromise Apple and other devices, and they pay money. Uh, then there are, there's a well-known group, uh, the hacking team, which focuses on exploits, uh, but their capabilities range beyond just putting malware uh, on a bad actor's computer uh, via a flash or a PDF file. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are companies operating in the Ukraine, uh, which, uh, and, and in Tallinn, Estonia. I don't want to name that group because, again, I have a relationship with them. Uh, but one of their principals is in San Francisco at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, and they specialize in uh, providing uh, support to the governments outside the U.S. In addition to the group in Estonia, there are uh, companies operating in Germany, one of which has been in the news as Finfisher, which has been tapped by the, uh, uh, some of the authorities uh, to provide advanced uh, capabilities to the German government. My view is I'm not a political animal. I, I do not make moral judgments about the work I've been asked to do, and I'm not going to change after 50 years. People hire me uh, to do a job. Uh, if these jobs regarding uh, the hardware uh, are not done today, there is now sufficient information available from the discussion of the current Apple FBI matter to guide the groups that I just mentioned, plus groups I've not mentioned, like Aglaya in uh, India, uh, to perform whatever uh, engineering tasks are required and they will get contracts from their governments, and they'll have access to the best mathematicians, electrical engineers, and computer scientists. Uh, and as you know, if I could figure out indexing Latin when I was 17 years old and didn't know what my, what my major was, what, what do you think people far smarter than I can do today when they're supported and encouraged and put in a, a team environment where it is fun and cool. So my answer to your question is, when you brought it up, uh, is we, my view, this is kind of theater. 
you know, the real work is already done. And, uh, you know, the theater is good and it makes a thing communicate, but it's not germane to what is actually going on in the, in the world. In other words, regardless of the outcome of that struggle between uh, Apple and the FBI, there will be other actors who would be willing to step in and do the, get the job done if they haven't already done so. That's a very good way to state it. I am a big proponent of using quantum technology to perform computing and encryption tasks. The problem is the cost and complexity of those methods. Uh, you, you, if you get to Google, you, they'll maybe let you look through the window at the D-Wave thing. They got sort of running. Uh, but that is not practical. Uh, so what we have is a reality that is not well understood by most people. And that reality has been uh, in place and under aggressive development of, for decades. Hmm, very interesting. So let me ask you the, the other question then that, that my audience and, and me have discussed on a couple of other occasions then. Uh, even though you said you're not kind of a, a political uh, animal, uh, does it in any way in your professional, perhaps, or personal opinion, add up to Big Brother? Because, of course, that's the concern. The concern is we're being surveilled everywhere we go, everything we do, our activity, be it online, on our cell phones, uh, walking anywhere since we always have a cell phone in our pocket or in our car with us. We're being constantly monitored and somebody is collecting the data, be, be it government, be it uh, private enterprises and corporations. So does it all add up to Big Brother in your view? I, 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 if you say Big Brother, you know, that has an emotional connotation. I mean, any of the visions as espoused by George Orwell, Orwell Huxley, or even Kafka in, in some of their works, right? I think if we take those three fictional descriptions that occurred before there were computers, you know that in the mind of those very intelligent people, there is an inherent awareness that monitoring and surveillance is part of their view of society. If you flash forward to today, they're correct. Because when you put humans together and you charge them with keeping the peace or stopping speeding or eliminating uh, potential hotspots uh, where your wife and daughter go shopping, they are going to take advantage of the tools that are readily available. And it, there's no way to stop it. It's not in any single country. It is a function of a hierarchy. If you have a company and you're at the top of the company, you have controls no one else has. And it gives you a, a unique way to see the world and make decisions. And that is inherent in the human condition. So what we see happening today is that those 
needs are simply becoming dominant. They're moving up the Maslow hierarchy. So instead of food, you've got surveillance, you know, up there. And uh, that's all over the world. Every country I've worked in, and I've been in more than I think, I don't, I don't remember, probably 40 countries. It's exactly the same. It's not cultural. It's, it's essentially a function that was identified by Kafka, Orwell, and the other prescient fiction writers. Okay, so in a way you're putting forward the, the argument that that's kind of inevitable feature of our kind of form of, of government, uh, governance and, and, or social uh, organization, if you will. Uh, I'm going to come back to that uh, in a second. But, but first, let me ask you to, to, to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. And so let's assume for the sake of the argument that it is inevitable, as you say. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? See, you're asking a person who worked at Halliburton Nuclear, and I, I don't think that way. Uh, you well, know, isn't that an important question? I know it is, but I've been asked this question. How, how could you go from working at a university to working in the nuclear industry? And the answer was, I solve problems. I, I have never had... Uh, any interest or desire to come down on the side of good or bad. I do what I do. I stay in my little zone. So I'm useless in a policy decision. I would ask you, what do you want to accomplish and can you pay me? And then I would say, I will do it or I won't. I don't make a judgment about you. That's your decision. So I'm kind of a tool. That's that's how I've positioned myself, and uh, I, I'm just not I'm not wired that way. My wife says to me, "Steve, you just don't have a lot of empathy," you know, and that's true. I do not. I I don't I just don't relate to the imagery or the words or the plights. Uh, I focus on my area of expertise to the exclusion of these other issues. And I don't know, as I've always been that way, that's my wiring. So I'm not good at that. But if I may push you a little bit here, because like that's very comfortable and convenient like place to be in and safe. But if you look at the other big pro pro problem solvers, like for example, Oppenheimer, he solved a major issue and then eventually he regretted solving that issue, right? Uh, and and went to to spend a lot of time against uh, nuclear arms proliferation and, and stuff like that. So, uh, in other words, uh, it's not. You see, my blog is 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 people think it's about technology, but it's really about ethics because technology in itself is amoral. But how we use it, how we apply it, makes it good or bad, makes it moral or immoral. And that, to me, is the most interesting thing, interesting part. So, for example, let me give you a specific example to you. Let's say I'm a I'm Al Qaeda and I come to you to solve my problem, right? Would you do that? Would you solve my problem? Well, again, I, well. I, I get asked this frequently. In my career, I have I do not drink, I do not smoke, I do not take drugs, I have never been arrested. If I'm presented with a choice. I typically 
decide on a what I think is a conservative, appropriate type of behavior. So if you call me and you are a representative of a country that is an enemy of the United States, I will not assist you. I, I, I don't talk to you. I don't follow up. I don't do anything. But that's a choice you make. Exactly. And I, be, I behave in, from my upbringing in the Midwest, as an overachieving single child of a married father and mother who, who were married for over 58 years, a very, I guess, rigid sense of right and wrong. But I do not impose that on other people. I exercise that by my decision telling you, no, I don't want to speak with you. No, I don't want to work with that. Right. And that's I how I operate. I appreciate that. And I just wanted to, you wanted to use that example to point that you do make those choices. They're inevitable, just like what you said about the other thing is inevitable, that's to say surveillance. But I would say moral decisions are also inevitable in one way or another, simply because of the actions we make. They always translate into some kind of ethical direction. I would agree. But again, you're looking at a person who has been alive 70 years. And, uh, you know, I've absorbed some certain patterns of conduct from my parents, which yeah. I don't think about unless you probe me. But I, do, doing right now. <laughs> but, but I do, uh, in my mind, uh, try to make uh, situational decisions that are correct according to my value standard. Let me give you an example. I worked with a fella and he played the trick on me in January. I terminated relationship with that person. I'd known him for five years at that point, but I do not want to work with people whom I cannot trust. I agree that. And I, that's, I, that's I appreciate that. Yes. Black and white guy. I know that I have worked for people in the investment banks who I don't trust. But once I finished the job and discovered that, I never went back. I simply, because I don't have prior knowledge of the entire uh, implication of the work. Right, I understand that, yes. And so I, I am very much the 17-year-old I was when I tore off thing that need a computer programmer to index. That is a falsehood. I lied. I went to the meeting and I told the man, I can do this. And it was. In the way you were right, only you didn't know how it would be done at the time. Exactly. <laughs> I had confidence because when I was young, I thought I was one of the smartest people in the world. Now I realize I'm not. I, I'm honored that you want to talk to me but I'm just a very average person who works hard in one little area, like reading the Palantir patents. Find another 71-year-old who did that. You're not going to. There is zero out there. I'm the only guy. And that's been my key to work. I get a job, I do it, and if it makes me comfortable, I will continue to do it. If it makes me uncomfortable, I finish the work, I go away, I do not, I just don't go there again. Mm -hmm. And so I cannot deal with these larger trends in society. I'm not equipped 
uh, in the interpersonally. I'm not equipped emotionally. I'm not equipped intellectually. I, I am good at certain things, and if you hire me, I execute within that skill set. Yeah. You know, people said to me at Halliburton, we're going to talk about nuclear effects modeling. Does that bother you? I said, uh, will I get paid in two weeks? And they said, yes. I said, I'm on board. I, I, I needed a job. And so I did the work in the Halliburton environment. I didn't really think about it. You know, I was 20 years, 21 years old or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. What do I know? Let me move on from this a little bit here. By the way, your story of saying that you can do the job without knowing how reminds me very much to when Microsoft first uh, sold uh, uh, an operating system to IBM uh, at a time when they didn't actually have one. And so right after the meeting with IBM in uh, New York or Boston or somewhere in the East Coast, Paul Allen had to take a flight and fly to the West Coast and go to a guy's garage who invented um, uh, DOS. All right, Gary. Well, they went first to Gary Kildall and got turned down, and then they found a guy near Gates' house. You know, But again, intelligence, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to explain intelligence. That interests me tremendously uh, because I don't think of myself as being smart. I think of myself as being able to read all 500 Google patents when I started in 2006. I think of myself as being able to read all of the 90-odd Palantir patent documents. I just slog along, and I get my joy by being able to provide for my family and feel satisfaction in my work. And and that's been my focus. I don't want to hurt anyone myself. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's, I'll tell you, if I'm walking down the street in New York and I'm thinking about something, I would trip over a street person. <laughs> the guy with the sign and, you know, no arms and, you know, I wouldn't see him. I'm in my own world. Look at where I am. I'm underground and there are 13 servers in this area. This is, most people 71 are in a rest home. And here I am writing analyses of the dark web and Palantir. I'm in my own little world. And, and I've always been that way. So I am not representative and I, am, I would be the first to say I'm not normal. And anyone who knows me would say the same thing. They would say this guy is not able to shift out of his thought process. You know, I work and focus a hundred percent. And that's just the wiring uh, that I have. Stephen, uh, time is advancing here. So I'd like to finish our interview if possible within the next uh, 17 or 18 minutes the most. So let me, let me try and move on here with a couple of quick ones, which are kind of cotangent on what we discussed. Uh, one of them is simply because I can't forego there. There were a few people who asked me to ask you about that. And that's uh, you actually even mentioned that uh, Booz Allen had the misfortune of hiring a, a certain contractor called Edward Snowden. Can you just tell me a little bit more uh, of your view on that? Yeah, as Booz Allen or any organization gets larger, uh, you depend on third parties to perform uh, the vetting of individuals. 
And, uh, you know, Edward Snowden came as a, as a contractor who was vetted by a third party. That company is out of business now. Uh, that the Edward Snowden affair put him away. In the Booz Allen, when I worked with Dr. Summers, the vetting would have been handled by the fellow who called me, Ron Coughlin. And I am pretty confident Ron would not have hired Mr. Snowden. Why? Because of the process. It was a more personal function when I worked at Booz Allen. It was not as big a company. We had smaller government contracts. But what would have triggered the, the denial rather than the acceptance? Because uh, to my knowledge, Edward did tick all the right checkboxes. I just have confidence in Coughlin's people sense. And, uh, you know, it was a more personal company. Think back to the hiring process at Google uh, in that, that series of years from 1998 to 2006, 2007. That's the miracle period. You got hired at Google if someone knew you and vouched for you, right? You were in a class at Stanford, and that professor told you this kid could do the work, and Google would pay attention to them. If you were unknown to Google, they would not run you through these infinite interviews. They would give you a test called the Google Lab Aptitude Test. I have a copy of one of the first ones. And if you didn't answer the questions, you were washed out. Today, Google hires by buying companies. Yes. We talked about that. Yeah. Booz Allen is the same way. I, I'm not criticizing Google or Booz Allen or Hewlett Packard or IBM or any of them. But as you industrialize processes, you get a statistical error, and it's not traced back to any one person. It was a process that produced Snowden, and there you have it. And, uh, you know, they, it, it, I, my instinct is that Coughlin and his team uh, would, would have identified behaviors that made them uncomfortable. And, I agree. Uh, I agree with you that it was a process that, that produced Snowden, but some people have said that the process is not the, the hiring process, but the process of surveillance uh, uh, at large-scale dragnet of, of, of American citizens, uh, which seems to be both illegal and unconstitutional and unethical and, quite frankly, politically very stupid in some ways, and, and according to others, actually ineffective. In, in producing the outcomes they are hoping it will produce. Well, right, because the marketing science fiction is one of the things that accelerates the building of ever larger systems. If you do a search for DCGS hyphen A space mashup, you will see a very huge next generation system being built. And it is one of those things that is almost science fiction. But uh, it is not here, it's simply being assembled because people are capable of doing it. The difference between and Snowden... And get paid to do it. Huh? And get paid to do so. Yeah, if I were young again, I would be on board with that, you know? I, that would be cool to do. I mean, I could see a lot of things where my expertise could contribute. The difference between a profile like Snowden and a profile like mine is that I am very rigid in my sense of what I will and won't do. 
it's been consistent for 70 years. Yeah. His personality was shaped by the work and his thinking about the work. You know, and if you were working on nuclear effects modeling and worrying about how many people you kill from the nuclear plume, and then you went and talked about that work, uh, you would be behaving in a statistically small uh, manner for the people who normally get involved in that work. You, you learn like doctors to compartmentalize it. And I'm good at compartmentalizing. Yeah, you're talking about two different mindsets, which were well exemplified by two people who worked on the Manhattan Project. One was yes. Heimer, another was John von Neumann. John von Neumann con continued uh, in, in the same vein of work and was instrumental in the production of the hydrogen bomb and was even pushing the United States to strike first, uh, the communists. Whereas Oppenheimer changed his mind uh, right yes. after World War II and actually started uh, uh, claiming, uh, starting uh, working as an opposition to, to the development of the hydrogen uh, bomb. So those are the two mindsets that you and, and Edward Snowden uh, exhibit. Exactly. I'm a different person, and that is going to exist. And as an organization gets larger and the implications of the work become more evident, different personalities behave in a different manner. And people like Coughlin were good at understanding what it took to be successful at Booz Allen. When I joined, they told you, six months, most of you will be fired. And the people, some people quit right away because they didn't feel that they could deal with the challenge. You know, the pressure, the number of hours, the billability, responsibility, the getting smart on a topic area on a weekend when your child was in the hospital, that weeds out the sissies. Yeah. Okay? And so that's just what happens in these high-impact, high-potential companies. You, you attract and cultivate people who have a specific mindset. And the mindset in intelligence and police and analysts on Wall Street uh, is different today uh, in that it's much more quantitative based, focuses on the use of math to identify signals so you can make a decision in a more informed manner. And that is a revolution. And uh, that's, it's, that's why I, I don't get overly excited uh, about the DCG. DCGS hyphen A mashup project. I don't get overly excited about Avatar, another project. I, I, just, I, I understand where they fit. And, uh, you know, they're going to follow the same trajectory other large projects have. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's our, our uh, situation at the moment. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, then, what, in your view, are the big issues in search today that you're most interested in? Well, the thing that I'm fascinated with is the application of advanced mathematics, principally from uh, the type of statistical procedures used for the identification of significant particles in nuclear uh, collisions, such as CERN. Uh, I think that those mathematics can help surface signals in content that would be uh, otherwise missed by even an intelligent analyst. 
the second mathematical area that interests me are multidimensional manifolds and the idea that a sequence of data can be placed in a three-dimensional space. I take a snapshot of that, then do the same process X time slices later, and you have a snapshot. And then you look at a movie of the salient points through those manifold snapshots. Now you're going to say, well, what does that have to do timeline. with Twitter? Yeah, yeah, I'm a map and timeline and visualization. What does that have to do with Twitter? Well, let's say I have a Twitter stream coming in and I am applying a Diffio type of methods, the company at MIT, and I'm using the manifold techniques of a researcher in Sweden. I can't remember his name right now, but I have several of his papers. Uh, then I think we would find signals in the Twitter stream that would be not detectable by today's common procedures, right? If you think about nuclear fusion, you find that the fusion cannot be sustained. And by looking at different types of mathematical analyses through time, you see that the loss of the containment of the fusion is caused by a broader, non-visible, non-detectable deterioration of an external magnetic shell among the particles. That, so now, those mathematical procedures have revealed to the researchers on fusion that there is a phenomenon that was hitherto not recognized. And if you take a look at the search in fusion uh, and look at the most recent papers, you'll see that there is this notion of layers. These new techniques allow us to take text or uh, cell phone uh, uh, transmission data that's anonymized or take any other large data sets and apply these next generation mathematical procedures. I think it will reveal things about human behavior that we cannot discern just by reading words or looking at a table. And so search is transforming itself now as more machine capability becomes available and these mathematical techniques are taught to the 17-year-olds who, like me, say, I can do it. And they internalize that stuff and they put the Legos together in a new way. That's how search will be transformed. Google is trying to do that. Uh, other companies... Yeah, that actually reminds me to what Eric Schmidt once said that, first of all, Google doesn't see itself as a search engine company, but as artificial intelligence company. And that ultimately the goal, he said, was to know what you want, when you want it, before you even know you want it. Well, I don't agree with them. I think that what we're doing is learning to look at data in layers. Just as your your comments to me early on, uh, in a, before we had the interview, uh, I said that singularity was working like the growth of a child, that you have evolutionary steps that if you look at them closely, you cannot discern on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you look at that child every six months, you are able to see patterns that you cannot see when you're close. And Google, I think, is using math in a similar manner. Because if you see those patterns, then you can have a signal uh, that can inform you about the change or the growth of that child. Violence in the preschool. If it's discernible over a 12-month period, there may be techniques to 
ameliorate the discomfort that that child feels to cause the violence to surface. But if you look on a daily basis, you may miss those important signals. We have to do the same thing with mathematics in these large flows of data that are available. And that is what's exciting about search. It helps us find actionable information. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you another uh, amoral kind of engineering or mathematical (laughs) capability. I want to be in my my basement with my servers. I don't want to think morality. Right, Right. so I'm asking you a relative question here about, uh, so first of all, the way I get it, uh, indexing, uh, search, and, and surveillance, whether for advertising, like Google does, or for law enforcement, like all those other companies that we discussed does, are pretty much the same thing. Is that not the case? Yeah, it's all math. You, yeah. you cannot make math legal or illegal or good or bad. Yeah. Once you apply mathematical techniques, they operate. The variables are humans, <laughs> you know, and you, 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 can't, you can't change how people react to what are, in, a, in effect, predictable, repeatable systems and procedures that obey certain basic laws, whether it's physics or whether it's how N cubes operate uh, or how you can manipulate a, a, a map and see a ground-level view of the terrain at the same time you're looking at the top-down uh, from a satellite, you know, this hybrid view of a map. It's just there, and then people think about it the way I did when I was 17. It's a Lego block, and you put these things together, and voila, you can index these crazy Latin sermons. I mean, it seems, I I don't know, I've been doing the same thing for 50 years, and I'm not going to change. And And you uh, you love doing it, and you're fascinating with it fascinated i do yeah and you know i i would like to work more i'd like to take projects i get calls but i have to like i said i'm best in the morning but i'm old and i get very sluggish by the time it's noon and uh i need to live with that limitation Mm -hmm. Uh, but i i envy people who are the way i was standing there as a freshman with my big thick glasses, needing a job, totally confused about the university. And here's a guy who wants somebody to help him do computer work. And I tore it off. And that was my college education. It wasn't the classes and listening about calculus or any of that. I didn't care. I was a good student, but I I didn't care. What I cared about was making the machines and the software deliver these new exciting things and that is what's going to drive innovation are the young people who take these challenges some will fail some will succeed and that to me is you know what is keeping me going i'm trying to recapture that spirit that i had when i was 17 years old i uh I think this is actually a good point to bring our conversation to a stop today, despite the fact that I can keep you for another hour here. But um, let me ask you, Stephen, what's the best place or way for people to connect and or start following you and your work, perhaps? (laughs) Well, as I told you, uh, I don't do Facebook. My dog does Facebook. Uh, I don't do Twitter. Uh, We have software that tweets. 
if people want to reach me directly, uh, we have a Yahoo account, uh, and it's listed in the blog. And uh, people can just send me an email. Uh, and if they want to hire me, uh, they just put the word money in the subject line, and I read every one of those. <laughs> but I'm very easy to find if you search me. In Google, I turn up, you search the name of my books. Uh, the trick is that I don't travel anymore. If people want to talk to me, uh, they have to come, you know, to Kentucky. Uh, and I will meet them in an airport or in a hotel or something. Uh, no one comes into this computer center. Uh, this is still where we did TOSIG, and I have kept all of the security functions in place. Uh, so we meet outside of my computer area mm -hmm. because I've got a lot of cool things. <laughs> I got a lot of neat things going. Right, right. So we now today get a privileged access, if you will. Yeah, you can see. Uh, these uh, three monitors are the ones I am doing uh, the current analysis of the companies, uh, you know, that are in the dark web book. I mean, I'm running the uh, intercept technology and the malware technology from one of the companies I mentioned. And then in the back, I think you can see the screens flickering. Uh, those screens are the constant spidering we're doing for my overflight service. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are machines on the other side of the room that are doing other, other work. Um, my wife just shakes her head and, and she said, where are the stamps? This place is a mess. <laughs> and, well, it's, it's all computers and wires. So I have no idea where my stamps are, you know. <laughs> well, Stephen, it's been uh, fascinating uh, to have you on my show today. What, in your view, is the best way to wrap up this conversation? We covered a variety of uh, topics and issues. How do we wrap it up? What's the kind of parting message, perhaps, that you'd like to send us with? Well, be excited about uh, solving problems. Don't be afraid to try and solve a problem that you don't think you can solve. So that, that's be curious, work, learn. Uh, the second thing is uh, you can learn about these new areas, next generation information access, uh, the dark web, companies like Palantir, uh, you know, by buying uh, those reports. And uh, you can get information on them uh, when they come out. It, you can look at the blog. Uh, it's called Beyond Search. And it's at www.arnoldit.com slash WordPress. And there are 15,000 stories on it now after eight years. And we publish seven days a week, uh, anywhere from two to five stories every day. Uh, and that's a lot of writing after eight years. And, uh, you know, uh, I do a couple of videos a year and put them on YouTube where I talk about CyberOcent and some of the companies. And you, you just search for me uh, on, uh, just search for me on YouTube. I, I'm easy to find. I mean, Google is all over my content indexing me and paying attention, as are some other companies. Very interesting. So... Uh, Stephen E. Arnold, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk. I'm going back to my machines before I fall asleep. Thank you.
If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 